Father, what a prayer that is. We pray that you would show us Christ, reveal your glory through the preached word. Speak to us now and make dead hearts come alive. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, please turn in your copy of God's holy and perfect word to John chapter 6 and verse 51. Christians are cannibalistic, incestuous, donkey-worshipping magicians who practice dangerous superstitions. How's that for an opening thought? It was much more graphic, but my wife encouraged me to tone it down. It's actually a quote from an article that describes how the earliest Christians of the church were perceived and what they were accused of in the first and second century by those who hated them most. Christians are cannibalistic, incestuous, donkey-worshipping magicians who practice dangerous superstitions. A document that was written in the second century with the shortened title given to it, Octavius, shows a dialogue that takes place between a Christian and a pagan of the time. Listen to just a portion of this correspondence where the pagan Cecilius accuses the Christian Octavius of cannibalism. Cecilius says, You Christians... Translate into English, of course. You Christians are the worst breed ever to affect the world. You deserve every punishment you get. It would be better if you and your Jesus had never been born. We hear that you are all cannibals. You eat the flesh of your children in your sacred meetings. Octavius the Christian responds, That story is probably based upon reports that we share together a meal of the body and blood of Christ. And that we do. But it is not human flesh we eat. It is bread and wine we consecrate to commemorate our Lord's death. It was accusations like this one that led the earliest Christians to be burned alive, crucified on crosses, draped in animal fur, and sent out to be eaten by wild beasts, and so much more. But why would anyone misinterpret the Lord's Supper as being cannibalistic? Or why would anyone accuse Christians of cannibalism? Well, listen to our text of study today and try to hear it with fresh ears and you tell me what you would think if you heard this for the first time. Look with me in John chapter 6. I'm going to start in the second half of verse 51. And the bread that I will give, this is Jesus speaking, the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. 
The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. One of the benefits of expositional preaching through a book of the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, is you can't avoid texts like this one where my encouragement to you today is going to be to feed on the flesh of Jesus and drink his blood. <laughs> In our elders meeting last Sunday, we read this text and we should have drawn straws for who had to preach it. If you're not a follower of Jesus this morning, or if you're newer to Christianity, here's what I can promise you today for, from this sermon. This sermon may not be one of the most exciting sermons you'll ever hear. It may not be one of the best sermons you'll ever hear, but I can almost guarantee and promise you this. It will certainly be one of the weirdest sermons you'll ever hear. At least in the first part. But if you're newer to Christianity, if you're not a Christian at all, lean in with us on such a strange text because I think it'll become clear as we walk through these verses. What can we say is the main point of such a strange sounding text? Well, I'm going to try to summarize it for you in just one sentence. Believing in Jesus is feeding on Jesus. And feeding on Jesus is abiding in Jesus. And those who abide in Jesus have eternal life. Believing in Jesus is feeding on Jesus. And feeding on Jesus is abiding in Jesus. And those who abide in Jesus have eternal life. So this is what Jesus is going to do in this text. Jesus is going to shock them in order to teach them. He's going to shock them in order to teach them. This is what all of our favorite teachers and preachers do. They find a way to convey reality in, in gripping ways with just the right tone and grabbing vocabulary that it just cuts through the numbness and it causes us to lean in and say, wait a second, what did he say? It pricks our minds and hearts in fresh ways. Jesus is going to shock them to teach them. So watch Jesus shock them first. 
Do you recall what Jesus has been saying to them already? If you've been with us the last few weeks, then you've been tracking what Jesus has been saying. Jesus has been claiming to be the bread from heaven. Bread that he says gives eternal life to the world. Bread that he says is superior, in fact, to the bread that their forefathers ate hundreds of years prior in the wilderness. And it caused them, we saw last week, to start grumbling about how can he claim to be from heaven. But just if any of them are starting to warm up to this idea of, okay, of, of Jesus providing eternal bread, if any of them are starting to believe, okay, maybe this is the case, if any of them are starting to ask, where can we get this bread? Jesus then says this in verse 51. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. His flesh? They must be thinking, excuse me, what? And see, they haven't so far liked his metaphorical language about being bread from heaven. And they've been grumbling about it. But now when he says this, we see that their grumbling turns to arguing. Look at verse 52. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? And that word disputed, the Jews disputed, in the original Greek word there, it is the strongest of words for arguing. These, these people hearing Jesus' message, they are furious and bewildered. They are asking, how in the world does he mean for us to eat his flesh? They're bickering and fighting. Perhaps it's something like, well, he doesn't mean literally eat his flesh, surely. And someone says, well, how do you know? That's what he said. He said, my flesh is bread. And you eat bread. He says, my flesh is bread. He wants us to eat his flesh. They say, no, come on. We're not that barbaric. He's, you have any other better ideas? The man said, my flesh is bread. You eat my flesh, drink my blood. Do you have any better ideas? And he say, well, no. Well, then he must mean... He wants us to eat and drink his flesh and blood. How can he say that? Surely he's not literal. He can't be literal. This speculation, what they're saying, but either way, we know from the text, they are arguing over what it means. And now that they're quite disturbed over it, Maybe Jesus will then soften his claim. And maybe he'll say, okay guys, obviously I'm not speaking literally here. Here's what the real meaning is. Maybe he'll put their minds at ease. But boy, if you look in the text, he doesn't do that at all. Instead, we're going to see him double down three times. Or triple down, whatever the language is. He's going to go deeper. Look at the first time he doubles down, verse 53. 
They say, how can he say to eat his flesh? Jesus said to them, truly, truly. Okay, he's going to tell us the truth. He's going to shoot it straight with us. Listen up. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. So just to be completely frank and weird, if you're here this morning and you've never trusted in Jesus, Jesus says, unless you eat his flesh and drink his blood, you will never see eternal life. It certainly is a strange way to put it. I mean, you can feel the shock of it. It's just, quite frankly, gross. Eating flesh, drinking blood. I mean, is he serious right now? Is this some kind of weird... Halloween joke like Mark our Mark joked earlier uh, this is like Vampire Sunday or something and we've heard of repent and believe and we don't often see on signs eat and drink now, this is what Jesus says unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood you have no life in you Now, as that settles on your stomach for a second, considers this. Why did Jesus call himself the Son of Man here? You see, he does that in verse 53, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man. Why doesn't he say, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood? Why, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man? Well, that's a favorite title that Jesus uses for himself is actually a, a messianic title that comes from Daniel chapter 7 verse 13 that points to this God-man-like figure who's going to have all power and authority and worship on earth. It's a veiled reference that Jesus often uses with people. They don't pick up its meaning often. But here I think he uses it specifically to, to kick back at his grumblers a little bit. Look closely at what they said in verse 52. They grumble, they dispute. How can this man give us his flesh as though Jesus is just another mere mortal man? You know, nothing special about him. How can, them, how can this one person, this one man, just like me and you, come along now and say, drink, eat my flesh and drink my blood? How can that man say that? And Jesus says... Subtly but powerfully, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, to verbalize he's no mere man just like them. Now the shock of this to them, of course, is no one eats flesh. It's disgusting. And of course they know they should not be drinking blood. In fact, they knew God's law forbade them to drink blood. But once the shock of that wears off a bit, if you catch the truth of what Jesus is actually saying here, it's just as shocking. In other words, Jesus is claiming here that he is the only way that you can have life. And for these people, 
He's saying you can't get it through Abraham or Moses or King David or Elijah or all of your other heroic forefathers. You can't get it from them. He says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. Unless you eat of my life, you will have no life. And that is a truth that is just as important today to many cults around the world around our community. I had a friend recently tell me of a time he shared the gospel with a couple of Jehovah's Witnesses. He was in a conversation with them and he asked them, so do you have any spiritual beliefs? And they said, of course, we are Jehovah's Witnesses. And he said, well, if what you believed was wrong, would you want to know it? They said, yes, of course, but we can tell you we're well-trained in what we believe. He said, I've heard this before about you. And so they started talking. They eventually get to John 14, 6, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And my friend looks at the two Jehovah's Witnesses and he says, now who is talking in this scripture? And they said, Jesus. He said, so... Who is the only way, truth, and life? Who is the only one that will lead to the Father? And he said they wouldn't answer him. He said he went through it again. He said it took him three times before they were willing to admit it was Jesus making such a claim. In a very graphic way here, Jesus says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you will have no life. It's the only way. He is the only way. And in verse 54, he keeps talking to them. And now maybe that he's been graphic with them, maybe now he will soften his claim, but he doesn't again. Instead, we'll see him double down again. Verse 54, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Now notice the verb change here from eat to feeds. It's even more graphic. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you'll have no life. And now he says, whoever feeds. If you eat something, it could be just a one-time tasting. Maybe you put it in your mouth, swallow it, and never eat it again. If you feed on something, well, that's an ongoing nature of intake. Scholar Don Carson even points out here that the word Jesus uses here for feeds, whoever feeds on my flesh, actually in the original Greek, how they use that word, he says it's more like the word munching. <laughs> whoever munches on Christ. So in essence, Jesus is saying, with no irreverence given, whoever munches on my flesh and drinks my blood, whoever keeps eating and whoever keeps feeding has life. It is a, an, an ongoing active verb here that has an eternal reward secured right now. Whoever feeds has life. If you know anything about cows, you know that they'll eat grass all day long, and then sometimes you'll see a cow lying in the shade, 
And he's not eating new grass, but he's chewing in a circular motion with his jaw. And we're one, you think, well, he's not eating grass, and he's not chewing gum, so what's he doing? And your local farmer will tell you he's chewing his cud, right? Some of you have heard that language before. The cow is chewing their cud. Now, what does that mean? It's when a cow's in a relaxed state that the grass he's already eaten is actually regurgitated back to his mouth and he feeds on it more. (laughs) I'm sorry for the gross image, but it gets the picture across well that when we feed on Christ, it's there. We, We intake him again and again and again. Jesus says, whoever feeds on my flesh drinks my blood, has eternal life. I want you to see a parallel between what Jesus says in verse 40 of this text and verse 54. This is why it's helpful to have your Bibles open when someone's preaching a sermon. Look at the parallel. Look at what he says in verse 40. We studied this a couple weeks ago. He says, Everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life and I'll raise him up on the last day. Now go to verse 54. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I'll raise him up on the last day. Do you see it's the same message? Whoever looks and believes has eternal life. Whoever feeds and drinks has eternal life. So true looking and true believing in Jesus is feeding and drinking on him. And you may think, well, how do you know if, if I, how do, how do I know if I'm feeding on Christ? I love the way that Augustine once put it. He said, quote, believe and you have eaten. Clearly, Jesus is speaking metaphorically here. He's not speaking of literal cannibalism. He's stating what he's already said about looking and believing, but now it's just much more graphic, feeding and drinking. To look and believe is to feed and drink of his flesh and blood. Okay, well maybe now he will finally soften the language for them. But he doesn't. He presses it one more time. Look at verse 55. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Just in case they're at this point where they're saying, okay, he can't be meaning his flesh and blood are true food and drink. He says, my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. In fact, this is why whoever feeds and drinks on Jesus has eternal life. Because for, that's what the word for there is for in the verse, for my flesh is true food, my blood is true drink. In other words, it's more nourishing and lasting than anything you have ever consumed. If you're not a Christian this morning or if you're new to Christianity, I'm speaking in a lot of metaphorical language. Hopefully you get the, the, the tone and the the language I'm using is metaphorical, of course, here. But if you're not a Christian, you're new to Christianity, 
consider this about Jesus. What Jesus is saying here is he is better, more long-lasting, more, more nourishing than anything you could devote your life to or could be consumed by. Jesus is that. But I think it's important for us to embrace the fact that Jesus has been intentionally evocative here. He doesn't just speak of his flesh and blood in metaphor one time. He presses in three times on this edgy, cannibalistic, undertone language with them. And of course, he's not speaking literally here, but he's pressing it hard enough to make them nervous about the possibility. Now, there's a place for preachers to use shock appeal to make you say, wait, what did he say? So you're leaning in a little bit more to what he's saying. And he is shocking them by lingering over this idea of feasting on his flesh and gulping down his blood. It is a strange text. A strange metaphor. We're going to see next week it's so strange that it's hard for the crowd to listen to it and most of them just walk away. This is where Jesus loses them. So why is he being so evocative and vivid? Why is he using such strange metaphor here? I think for two reasons. Number one, as we're going to see next week, as I said, he's using this language to weed out false believers. He knows that he's talking to grumblers and skeptics and people who only want him for all the wrong reasons. And if he can use this language, and if they say, well, that's what it means to follow Jesus, I want nothing to do with him. If Jesus is trying to draw a big crowd, if he's trying to big, build a big mega church, like this is the wrong way to do it. Now this is how you talk if you're wanting to strain out the gold from the dirt. Number two, the reason why I think he's speaking like this is that is he's wanting to vividly explain what abiding in him looks like. Remember, he is shocking them in order to teach them. And as he has shocked them with this overwhelming language, he's going to teach them now exactly what he means. And as he teaches them, this vivid metaphor language imagery here that he uses appropriately highlights the image of what abiding in him looks like. And so now he's going to teach them. He's going to give them a non-literal image to communicate literal truth. We see his teaching of this metaphor become clear in verse 56. He says, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Now there's a new word for them. He's been talking a lot about eating and feeding and drinking. Now he's introducing this idea of abiding Feeding and drinking is abiding in him. I want you to notice there's a progression of how Jesus talks all throughout this chapter. The progression is this. If, if you've been tracking with us in recent weeks, you'll, you'll pick up on this progression. Remember at first he talked about coming to him. 
All who come to me will be satisfied. So there's this progression of those who come to Jesus, believe in Jesus. And those who believe in Jesus, feed on Jesus. And those who feed on Jesus, abide in Jesus. So that's the main point of the text. Believing in Jesus is feeding on him. And feeding on him is abiding in him. And those who abide in him have eternal life. Jesus touches on this concept of abiding in him, in him, in him here. We're going to see him give a much fuller explanation of what abiding in him looks like when we get to John chapter 15 when he talks about the vine and the branch. I suspect we'll probably get there in about 10 years. But he's touching on it here about abiding in him. When Jesus speaks of abiding in him, he's speaking of remaining in him, being connected to him, residing with him, enveloped by him, living with him, continuously identified with him, united to him. And this is how scripture speaks of one's union with Christ. Like the branch is in union with the vine, receiving nutrients and life as long as it's attached. This is abiding in Jesus, having union with him. So what Jesus says here is those who are believing in me, those who are feeding on me, are those who are in union with me. They're inseparable. And he even gives an illustration by speaking of his union with the Father in verse 57. Look what he says. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. Jesus' point is, he and the Father are inseparable. You can't separate them. They are they're one. He has life because the Father has life. You can't divide them. Jesus says, that's how abiding in me or feeding on me is. It's inseparable. We have life as a branch because we're connected to the vine. Now I want you to notice that there are two phases of this abiding in Jesus. There's an initial phase and then there's a continual phase. The initial phase is seen in the language Jesus uses in verses 51 and 53 where he uses the word eat. Unless you eat my flesh, you have no life. And this initial abiding in Christ starts at your conversion. If you're a Christian, there was a time when you had no appetite for God. You found the things of the Lord boring, tasteless, dry. But then at your conversion, you were united to Jesus with union through him, with repentance and faith there, and you began to understand the language of Psalm 34, 8 that says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is what? Good. Taste and see the Lord is good. Now, why would the psalmist say, taste and see? Why not just say, see and believe that the Lord is good? Because taste gives so much more of an idea of savoring, doesn't it? Because once you had no appetite for him. But then God gave you new taste buds and you tasted his goodness and oh, it was nourishing and savoring. You became united to Christ. It's who you wanted. You were found in him. 
you had that initial eating, that initial entry point of abiding. But then the second phase of abiding that Jesus speaks of here is the continual phase. I think this comes from the language shift from eat to feeds, that communicating ongoing savoring, like a horse that's hovering over sweet feed. He doesn't just take one bite and walk away. No, he will gnaw the grass to the dirt trying to get every last grain. It's continual. Keeps feeding. The abiding in Christ is not just tasting it once, but it's going back every single day to where you know you can go to the well and be nourished. It's continuing to drink from Him eat from him, remain in him. So when Jesus says those who feed on him and drink of him, abide in him, that abiding includes an initial coming and a continual staying. It includes being first consumed in Christ and then consumed with Christ. It involves coming to rest in him and then by his grace having resolve for him. Now naturally when people read this text we see a clear connection to the Lord's Supper where we remember the Lord's work for us by eating of the bread, drinking of the cup, the bread representative of Christ's body, the, the cup representative of his blood. And even though I don't think he's primarily teaching of the Lord's Supper here. It wasn't instituted yet. But I, I think it's very clear to see the connection. Now, when we come to the Lord's table, we even see that initial abiding in Christ and continual abiding in Christ. Singer Zach Williams portrays this beautiful abiding in his song to the table when he sings this hear the voice of love that's calling there's a chair that waits for you and a friend who understands everything you're going through he sings but you keep standing at a distance in the shadow of your shame there's a light of hope that's shining. Won't you come and take your place? And he sings, bring it all to the table. There's nothing he hasn't seen before. He says, all your sin, all your sadness, all your sorrow, there's a Savior and he calls. Bring it all to the table. Oh, that is just such a a beautiful picture of what Jesus invites for the sinner to come to. And if you're a Christian today, there was a point that you did that. You brought all your sin to Jesus and you said, I believe that your death covers the penalty for my sins. And every time you take the Lord's Supper, you're remembering that to be the case. You're professing, I still believe that's the case. This is what Jesus meant in verse 51 when he said, And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. You see, Jesus gives himself over 
for the life of the world. I love what Don Carson writes here. He says, quote, What is really scandalous then is not the cannibalistic metaphor, but the cross to which it points. And we come to the Lord's table, we remember Jesus has paid it all. But here's the deal. You don't just come to the Lord's table once. It's not like you become a Christian and you take the bread and the cup one time and you never do it again the rest of your time. What do you do? You keep coming to the table over and over again, professing each time, I still believe that I need this to be sufficient for me. Through this feeding, I'm still abiding. And you, in the Lord's table, you found your rest in Christ and your resolve to keep coming over and over. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer, my invitation to you would be, just as the songs I just quoted sings, there's a chair at the table for you. And why don't you come and take your place? And many times people are tempted to think, well, let me leave my sin at the door before I come among the holy people. That is such a, a backwards idea. When you come to Christ, you don't, you don't hide your stuff under the rug or stuff it in the closet or leave it in the car or leave it at the door. No, when you come to Christ, He says, come and bring it all and expose it all because He paid for it all. This is the beauty of the gospel. That when we come to Jesus, he doesn't, come, he doesn't ask us to come as perfect eaters or drinkers or perfect performers. No, he says, come and feast on me because you need me. So if you're not a believer, why don't you come to the table and join the feast of the forgiveness God has for you? Why not pray right now, admitting to God that you are a sinner, deserving of his wrath, but you're coming to defend, depend on Jesus that has, he has died for you. If you'd like to talk about this after the service, I would love to talk with you about what it means to find forgiveness in Jesus. There's this coming to Jesus to abide in him, and there's this continual abiding in him with him. I only have time to pick one passage to show you this clearly in Scripture, and I'll do this as I close. Where can we go to see this? You can, go, you can go all over the Bible to find this, but where can we go to see this initial abiding in Christ and then continuing to abide in Christ? I'm picking Galatians 2.20. It's a popular verse. Listen to what it says. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I want you to hear this verse. I want to provide a little bit of commentary along the way as I, as I do. Listen to the abiding language. I have been crucified with Christ. It's done. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That initial abiding has happened. The union with Christ has happened. Now listen, and the life I now live in the flesh, in the ongoing present, I live continuously abiding by faith in the Son of God. If you are a Christian today, I want to encourage you 
to remember your union with Christ. This is, this is really, really encouraging news. If you're a believer today, remember of when you were united to him. So that today, before the Lord, you are consumed in Christ. His perfect righteousness has enveloped you and his sacrificial death has covered you. And it's a beautiful union because as you're united to Christ, you always receive his good benefits of the atoning work and he always covers the filth of your sin with his blood. So that today when you fail in parenting, you're secure in Christ. Tomorrow when you fall into pride, he will humble you and pick you back up. When lust knocks at your door and you let her in, he will bring you to repentance and still have a seat at the table for you. When you fall into idolatry, whether it's money and fame or success, sports, hunting, reputation, whatever it is that grows bigger in your heart than God, he will graciously bring you back and remind you of a better bread there is to eat. I love what one author writes on the first commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me. She writes, if we turn this around positively, it is the Lord who says, thou shalt have me. Oh, that's good. Christian, because of your initial abiding union with Christ, God always graciously reminds you, come back to the better bread. It's still warm for you. But as I close, I also want to exhort you, believers, to pursue, by God's grace, continual abiding in Jesus. Through your union with him, you are consumed in Jesus. And because you're consumed with Je in Jesus, you can, by his grace, now go forward consumed with him in everything you do in all of your daily living. When you get up every morning, what do you eat for breakfast? For some of you, I suspect oatmeal may be a popular choice. Some of you may be cereal eaters. Some of you eat nothing. Some of you eat Reese cups. Where's my people at? You choose every morning what you're going to nourish your body with. What you're going to replenish from the fast overnight. When you wake up every morning, dear Christian, do you think on feeding on Jesus again today? Do you go to, oh, I need Jesus to fill me again today? Desiring God recently released a podcast about smart, smartphone usage in our culture today. Here's just a few stats in particular related to this idea of feeding or not feeding on Christ each day. I found it interesting. Of 8,000 responders to the survey, they discovered that half of the people admitted to scrolling through their phones within the first minutes of waking up in the morning. 
When it came to the ages 18 to 29, the statistic went well over 60%. And then when they asked how many scrolled the screen before spending time with God in the morning, the number was 73%. Now, don't be mistaken. Is it wrong to scroll our, our phones when we wake up in the morning? Of course it's not wrong. But it should make us pause and reflect. What am I eating for spiritual breakfast in the morning? What am I fueling my tank for the day with? What spiritual nutrients am I seeking sustainment from? Am I going straight to Twitter and looking at all the Twitter arguments and then expecting to speak kindly to my coworkers? Do I grumble at Fox News and then expect to have a, a prayerful spirit for my government leaders? Do I watch provocative Instagram reels and then expect to have pure thoughts throughout the day? Do I anxiously check the stocks and then expect to trust in the Lord's provisions? Do I chew on all the world offers first thing in the morning thinking less of God and then expect to live differently than the world? Piper commented on the podcast, he says, what we want in the morning routine is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We want something that gives us a zeal for the glory of Christ for the day's work. We want to be strengthened to face whatever the day may bring. We want to something that gives us joyful courage to resolve to count others better than ourselves and pursue true greatness. Very few of us wake up strengthened to do all those glorious things in and of ourselves. We need to ask God for His grace to continually feed and abide on Jesus so that every area of our life is colored by His ways, His teaching, His thoughts. This certainly is a strange text in the way that Jesus speaks. Of course, He's not speaking literally, but once we see He's talking about abiding in Him, the language of feeding sure is appropriate to help us see that we need to be consumed in Christ and then consumed with Christ. Old preacher James Boyce offers this question. Speaking of Jesus, is, quote, is he as real to you spiritually as something you can taste and handle? Is he as much a part of you as what you eat? Do not think me blasphemous when I say that he must be as real and as useful to you as a hamburger and french fries. I say this because although he is obviously far more real and useful than these, the unfortunate thing is that for many people he is much less. End quote. Jesus gets the last word of the sermon, verse 58. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Let's pray.